0: Do you believe in God? That may seem like a strange question to ask to people who had made an effort to come to church on Sunday at 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, who would uh, give up their precious weekend morning together in a place like this early in the morning, other than people who believe in God? And yet, I ask this question with complete seriousness. Because those of us who do indeed believe in God very easily and very often forget the astonishing difference such belief must make in our understanding of everything. Does belief in God make a difference in your life? Aside from coming to a Sunday meeting where you sing religious songs Uh, listen to a 30-minute Bible talk, Uh, does your belief in God make a difference in your thoughts, in your attitudes, your whole outlook in your life? When was the last time your belief in God so challenged and so changed your life? Uh, To believe in God of the Bible is to see all of reality in radically different terms from the person who does not hold to such belief. The person for whom believing in God is a a small thing, uh, just a part of a religious life, weekend life, uh, one part of life among my many busy commitments and responsibilities, with no more drastic consequences than simply attending church on Sunday and maybe another night, does not believe in the God of the Bible. The person who actually believes in God, not only with their mouth, not just as an idea, but God who has spoken and revealed himself through the words of the Bible, such a person will live differently. So I ask this question to you again this morning. Do you believe in God of the Bible? Uh, one area of life in which our belief in God must make a profound difference is how we respond to the crisis of life. Uh, does your belief in God and His power make a difference in times of anxious trouble? Does your belief in God's worthiness make a difference to the priorities that you set in life? Uh, does your belief and trust in God's wisdom? make a difference when you cannot work out why such a thing is happening in your life right now. Now, We have been going through the book of Isaiah for the past eight weeks and we'll come back to look at the second half of the book. And this is the question I think the book of Isaiah forces us to ponder again and again. Uh, Really, Isaiah is about God and he asks you and I, do you believe in God? the holy God of Israel. Uh, in our passage Isaiah 36 and 37 today, Judah finds himself in one of the most frightening national crises. Uh, it is very similar to the political crisis we saw way back in Isaiah chapter 7, if you'll remember, uh, but only worse. And the issue comes down to this question for the Israelites. Do you actually believe in God? Do you actually believe that your God can deliver you? the God who rescued you from Egypt and brought you to the promised land? Will trust in God, the holy God, the one who is infinite in power, infinite in wisdom and goodness, will that make a difference in how the Israelites respond to the crisis before them today? Uh, The same question will be asked of us also as we look to this part uh, of the Bible together. Will we believe in God? Will our trust in God make a difference in the way we respond to the power of sin, death, and the evil one in our own lives? Our answer to that question will determine the whole shape and destiny of our lives. Well, with that in mind, let's look at our passage together again, Isaiah chapter 36, 1. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the 45 cities of Judah And took them. Uh, The invasion described so concisely and somewhat dispassionately in verse 1 was in actuality a devastating blow. Uh, The background is explained further in the parallel account of 2 Kings chapter 18 to 20. Uh, Put it briefly: Assyria, like all other kingdoms, had a power change. You know, that's one thing that all the leaders of the world, whether ancient or modern, have in common. They die. After a long period of successful expansion and growth under able kings like Tiglath-Pileser III, uh, he was the one who destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC, and Sargon II, the kingdom, grew bigger and bigger, a new king named Sennacherib came to the throne around 705 BC. And the little nations under the governance of Assyria thought this would be an opportune time to free themselves from the yoke of Assyria. And King Hezekiah became embroiled in this anti-Assyrian activity as a kind of a head figure. Uh, this was a grievous mistake. The new king of Assyria was as committed as the old kings of Assyria for power and dominance. Sennachery was determined to teach the small states of the legion a lesson they would never forget. He came down south with a great army, capturing all the fortified cities of Judah and was in the process of doing the same to Lachish, which was really the last step, last protection before he comes to seize the city of Jerusalem. And from Lachish, Sennacherib sent his field commander, Rav Shaka, to Jerusalem. Now listen to his first speech from verse 2. And the king of Assyria sent the Ravshaka from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. He stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asp, the recorder. Uh, the scene has a familiar ring to it, doesn't it? Uh, if you remember again, we have seen this all the way back in Isaiah chapter 7. 34 years earlier, exactly, Isaiah had met King Ahaz, the father of King Hezekiah. And at that time, the prophet Isaiah exalted the king to trust God, to let God deliver you. Ahaz honored God with his lips, but did not trust God, which eventually brought God's judgment on Judah this very day. Now, Judah is back at the same place with the prospect of same kind of crisis. What will they do this time? Uh, Rav Shaka delivers a message. Verse 4. Say to Hezekiah. It's not even King Hezekiah. He's just Hezekiah. Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Uh, The great king was the title the Assyrian kings claimed for themselves. They were not just one of many kings. They are the great ones. And Hezekiah, who do you think you are? With what confidence, with what trust, have you come against the great king? Now, this wasn't going to be a friendly message. Rav continues, Do you think that me words are strategy and powerful war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt. Let me tell you about Egypt and what's happening. That broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the list of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Uh, Rav Shacham makes a powerful arguments to Hezekiah and Israelites for surrender. Uh, it is powerful because so much of what he says is true. Egypt at this time was in no position to help? And even if did, they did help, Rav asked, asks, well, Pharaoh is not a king you could trust. Do you really want to trust Pharaoh? How good is your uh, national relation with Pharaoh? What happened when you trusted Pharaoh last time? Ironically, this is exactly what the prophet Isaiah said that many years ago. Judah had refused to listen to the prophet Isaiah, and now same lesson, lesson is given by a foreign ruler. Uh, Rav Shekhar adds that it is no good looking to the Lord because Hezekiah has destroyed most of the places where he was worshipped. Uh, in 2 Kings 18, we are told that Hezekiah had conducted a religious reform, and that was a good thing. He was commanded by God. You know, uh, Israelites were commanded to only worship God at the temple in Jerusalem, not anywhere and everywhere they wanted but Rav Shaka speaks from his own pluralistic background, where reduction in worship places is equated with reduction in God's power. Well, he'll soon find out that the holy God of Israel is different to the idols that he serves. Uh, but at this point, this is a very clever rhetoric, uh, because he may have been playing on the nerves of those who are not very convinced of what Hezekiah did. He's trying to weaken Israelites' confidence and persuade them to surrender. Then Rabshakeh reminds another painful reality that even if Assyria gave chariots to Judah, they wouldn't even have a man to set riders on them. This is a powerful argument for surrender. It is powerful because it looks so true. All our natural instinct and our idea says this is the logical and right thing to do. But he has subtly twisted the truth. Its basic premise is false, namely that the Lord has forsaken his people and therefore trusting in him is futile. God was disciplining his people, yes, that's true, for their disobedience, but he hadn't completely forsaken them. That's what we heard from the very beginning of Isaiah in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Though your sins are like scarlet, it will be white as snow. God hadn't given up on them. And that is the message of Isaiah over and over again, and it will be amplified when we look at Isaiah 40 to 66. Shaka's tactics fit well into the long lines of Satan's attack against God's people. Now, this is what Satan does all the time and has been doing ever since the Garden of Eden, twisting the truth, only offering half-truth, sowing doubt and unbelief in the minds of God's people. Did God really say that? God doesn't want what is best for you. And he still does this today. Satan asks, are the gospel promises really a power of God for salvation, or is it just a mere talk that makes you feel comforted and warm?" And so that you can keep going with life. Is God really able to and does he provide all the things that you need to live a life of godliness until he comes back? Has God really blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Jesus Christ? Or is the secret of truly fulfilling life, lying, money, good looks, health, degrees from the right schools, secure retirement fund and a house under my name and all other mechanisms of self-empowerment we use to get a jump on other people. Satan works to the best of his capability to make you question and doubt your trust in God. Can you really trust God? Well, the answer really depends on who this God is and what he is like. And yes, God of the Bible, the Holy One of Israel, is able to save and faithful to keep what he promises, as we will see shortly. But for now, let's go back to uh, Rav Shaka. A moment of humorous sin follows. The Assyrian king's spokesman has delivered a powerful and challenging speech, and the Judean leaders who met him respond like um, typical politicians, not dealing with the issues that the Rav Shaka raised, but only worrying about the possible murmuring of the people. So they ask Rav to speak to them, not in the language of Judah, where people will understand it, but just in Aramaic. But Rav knows exactly what he is doing, and he puts no foot wrong. He delivers a second message directly addressing all the people of Jerusalem. Look look from verse 13. Then the Rav stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, each one of you his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his hand out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and of Apad? Where are the gods of Sephorain? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. Uh, his second speech is no longer subtle. And as you may have picked up, the key word there is deliver, isn't it? Salvation, same language. It occurs six times in verse 14, 15, 18, and 20. But the question is. Who will be able to deliver? Is it the king of Assyria or is it the, king, the Lord, the king of Judah, serves? Enough has been said this day. No words will be replied. There are times when silence is the best answer. Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah delivers the message to the king now and the ball is firmly back in Hezekiah's court. What will Hezekiah do before the enemy's attack? Uh, All the natural instincts and common sense says surrender. King of Assyria is the only one who can save them in this situation. Uh, But with Hezekiah, we'll see what difference believing in God makes in times of trouble. Hezekiah truly believes in the God of the Bible. And that makes a radical difference in how he sees and understands all of reality. Let's pick it up again from chapter 37 verse 14. I'll we'll skip over verses 1 to 13 due to time. Perhaps you can read uh, those skip the sections more uh, carefully in your growth groups. Uh, Hezekiah received a letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. Hezekiah took this letter, went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord Uh, That's the first thing a person who believes in God does in times of trouble. He takes the trouble to God in prayer. He knows who really is in control. Now what does he pray? O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth the opening lines of Hezekiah's prayer immediately reveal that he is not a man of superficial faith. He knows and trusts who God is. Hezekiah confesses the true nature of reality that can only be seen by faith. Israel's God, our God, is the sovereign God over all nations. He is the creator of heaven and the earth. Despite the appearances of things, Especially in the faces of all kinds of pressures to believe otherwise. The Assyrian king really looked like he was the great king. He was the savior. But Hezekiah knows, the God whom he has believed. He hasn't just believed God as an abstract idea. This wasn't just a religious thing that he did. He believed in sovereign God who sits on the throne who made the heavens and the earth. There is no limit to his power. He alone is God and there is no other. And let me ask you at this point again. Is Hezekiah's God, the God you believe in, God enthroned above, God of all the kingdoms of the earth, God who created the heavens and the earth, Do you believe him? And I ask you with all seriousness, do you believe in God whose fingers uphold the heavens and the earth, who gives you life and breath at this very hour? Or is your God just someone who may be useful as one part of your religious life to keep you going and hedge your bet? Even if I'm wrong, I won't get too much, you know, Bad return. Do you really believe in God who is in control of all things? And if so, how does that make a difference in your life today? How does this strengthen you? How does he strengthen you? How does he guide you both in times of trouble and joy? How does this God shape your life today? Not asking about yesterday or last week, today. Brothers and sisters, are any of you today pressured with all kinds of troubles of life? So caught up on it. And as Satan likes us to do and believe his lies and have forgotten who God is, then look at him again. This is the God you believe in. Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's how God. Let's keep looking at Hezekiah's marvelous prayer. He continues in verse 17. Incline your ear, O Lord. Hear, open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he had sent to mock the living God. Hezekiah knows that his God is a living God. God is not an idol. Idols cannot see. Idols cannot hear. But our God sees all things our God hears all things. God himself uh, will say these things uh, through the prophet Isaiah in verses 22 to 29 of chapter 37. Uh, Verse 23, God says, whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel? Uh, Verses 28 and 29, I know you're sitting down. I know you're going out and coming in. And you're raising against me because you have raised against me and your complacency has come to my ears. I'll put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I'll turn your back on the way by which you came. God is the living God. He hears and he sees. He knows everything. He knows everything. He judges the wicked and he saves his people. And let me ask you again is this the God you believe in? The living God. Not an impersonal, distant deity, but God who hears his people's needs. If you truly believed in this God, you would take all your requests to him in prayer, wouldn't you? Peter says to Christian brothers and sisters who are under severe suffering and persecution in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Are any of you anxious, troubled, scared? Cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Now on the flip side, if God is a living God who sees and hears, He is God who is not to be mocked. You cannot fool him with your church attendance. He knows the secrets of your and my heart. He knows whether you truly trust him or not. Whether you actually believe his word and fear him, fear his word more than fearing other men whether you're really more concerned about his will be done than your advances in life, he knows. You cannot fool him. Stop kidding yourself if you think you can fool him. Do you believe in the living God who is not to be mocked? God who sees you and knows you. If you do, you will fear him and you will respect him and give him his due in your life, wouldn't you? As the proverb says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, Hezekiah continues, verses 18 to 20. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands. They have cast down their gods into the fire, for they were no gods but the work of man's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Uh, Hezekiah sums up the state of affairs in verses 18 to 19. The kings of Assyria are more powerful than Hezekiah. That's true. They have demolished everything in their way. There are no other human kingdoms or their gods that could stand in their way. But Hezekiah insists, Lord God, you are different. The other gods are incompetent. They are simply the works of human hands. God created in the image of man. But you alone are the true God, so save us, as you have promised to save us. Hezekiah understood that salvation is in God and God alone. What is impossible with man is possible with God, as Jesus later says in Mark 10. Hezekiah finishes his magnificent prayer with a final petition to God that can only be made by a person who has come to trust and know the God of the Bible. Save us that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the God. His overriding concern is that God is made known and the whole earth be filled with the glory of God. Hezekiah asks for God's deliverance so that God's plan to bless the whole earth through the people of Israel would come to fruition. The prayer for deliverance becomes a cry for the coming of God's kingdom and that his will be done, his name not be mocked among the people. He asks, God, use my crisis to vindicate how good you are, how powerful you are. What a prayer, isn't it? A prayer that could only be spoken from the lips of a person who has known and trusted the God of the Bible, God of heaven and earth, who is almighty and sovereign, living God who hears his people's prayers, the only true God who alone deserves all glory, honour and praise. Is that the God you believe in? I look at the final verses of chapter 37 very briefly as we finish. The one true living God answered Hezekiah's prayers and saved them from the hands of the enemies, chapter 37, 36. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Shiraz, his son, struck him down with the sword. And after they had escaped into the land of Ararat, Ashadon, his son, reigned in his place. Uh, Look at the end of the great king. The great king who boasted and trusted in his own power. Look at his final destiny. He died while he was worshipping his God in his God's house in the hands of his own sons. What a joke, isn't it? His God cannot even protect him in his own temple. (coughs) All who raise their hands against God's king and his Messiah, God will bring them down. The one true living God will make himself known by exalting his king and his people over all his enemies. God will crush Satan's head. And that is what God has done by raising Jesus from the dead. He has now fixed the day, as Paul says, on which he will judge the world in righteousness in the name of Jesus Christ. The day when all who trust him will receive deliverance, share in his glory, And all who reject him will be crushed. This is our God. So let me ask you again. Do you trust him? It's nothing new, I know. Nothing original. But let me ask you today. Do you trust him today?